Our text this morning is uh, Acts. Acts. That was a couple series ago. Let me start over again. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. You'll find this on page 61 if you happen to be using one of our Pew Bibles. I'd also like to welcome you if you're a visitor uh, this morning. We're glad to have you here. If you've been around, you'll be aware that we're in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus, not Acts, the book of Exodus. And we've uh, spent the first half of this series going from Egypt up to Mount Sinai, of God setting his people free, take them into this land of freedom. And as we, uh, this week, get into the first of the Ten Commandments that they receive on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, the theme of our series stays the same, a life of freedom. Because just as God brings his people to freedom out of Egypt in the first uh, part of the book of Exodus, the giving of the law to them is an act of deliverance and liberation for them as well. That the law, too, is about freedom. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text for this morning. Let's pray, please. Father, we, um, we thank you that you are a God who sets us free. And we pray that you would open our eyes again to that this morning, that we would see how you set us free, and that you would teach us how to respond pray that you would drive this deep into our hearts, that we might live lives of grateful response to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. There's a 17th century uh, Puritan, British Puritan named Henry Scougal. Uh, I'm sure you're well familiar with Henry. Well, here's one of the things that Henry Scougal said. He said this, The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Okay, the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. Worth and excellency. In other words, its beauty, the beauty of a soul is measured by the objects of, it, of its love. Okay, so let's do a little thought experiment. Picture this. Picture your soul, and I think the way Schugel's using it, that sort of essential part of who you are. Picture your soul as, as a glass vase. And it's going to be filled with something. Okay, you see right through it to the, to the thing that it is filled with. It puts something on display, and it could be, could be filled with anything. Maybe you've visited beach houses I have, and you've seen them filled with shells, right? Maybe it's filled with sand. It could be filled with trash. It could be used as a spittoon. I don't know if anybody uses spittoons anymore, but I've seen westerns. I know what a spittoon is. Maybe it's filled with daisies or maybe something even yet more beautiful. Maybe it's a vase full of flower or full of roses. Maybe it's filled with diamonds. Maybe it's filled with something utterly beautiful. So here's a question to us. What is your soul putting on display, even this morning? Where is your soul finding its worth, its excellency, its beauty? Now, this might well be a question you really haven't thought about, at least in, in this way, maybe before this morning, maybe never given much thought to it. But that question is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. 
That question about the beauty and excellency of a soul being tied to the object of its love, the object of its affection. Because the Ten Commandments are about love. They are about what we love, what we are to love, and who we are to love. We know this because Jesus puts it this way in, in Matthew 22. A, a, a lawyer comes and, and poses this what uh, very loaded question to him. I'm sure that's hard to imagine, a lawyer coming and posing a loaded question. But he puts forth this question, Matthew 22, to test him, and he says this. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Okay, what's Jesus, Jesus doing? This lawyer comes and asks him a question. The Old Testament is full of Torah, of law, of instruction. As some count it, there are over 600 individual laws in the Old Testament, of which the Ten Commandments are this kind of crowning piece of that. And he comes and says, how do you boil it down, Jesus? What's the most important thing? How do you read the law? And Jesus says all of it can be boiled down, including the Ten Commandments, to this. Love God and love other people. The commandments have to do with love. And the way uh, theologians typically talk about this, the first four commandments have to do with loving God. And commandments 5 through 10 have to deal with specifically different aspects of loving others, of loving your neighbor. So Jesus' answer to Schugel's question, you know, the worth, excellency, beauty of a soul, is defined by loving God and loving others. And the first and greatest of these commands is to love God. Okay, with that in mind, we're looking at the first commandment this morning. And we're going to see what it, this commandment, what it commands and what it yields and how to cultivate it. Okay, so what it actually commands, what it yields, and how to cultivate it. First, what it commands, and we'll spend the majority of our time here. What does this commandment mean? Okay, first thing we see here, this commandment, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment is exclusive. What's God saying? That there is room for only one, and I am he. You see in here the way it's phrased, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally in the Hebrew, it's before my face, in my presence. There will be no other gods, not, not simply before me like you can have a god after me. There no, be no other god anywhere near me. You are to be a people of one god and I am he. Now it brings up kind of this interesting question. Are there other gods? Like do we have other choices? Well, the answer to that sort of uh, yes and no. As you go through the Old Testament, uh, especially when you get to the prophets, you, you see some of the strongest denunciations of the, the false gods, the idols of the uh, nations that surround Israel. If you were to look on your order of worship, Psalm 96, our call to worship, talks about uh, the hollowness of idols. And the prophets are very clear that, that idols are, are, are no actual thing, that they are empty, that there is, in fact, only one God. But in the context here, think about where the Israelites are coming from. They've just spent 400 years in Egypt in a very polytheistic environment, just as all of the ancient Near East was. In fact, when God uh, rescues them, Exodus 12, 12, he says, God says this, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
So in one very real sense, there are other gods, in the sense there are certainly other things that command our allegiance and our devotion. Listen to what Michael Williams says. Michael Williams, he's a uh, professor at Covenant Seminary, and this was from an article in By Faith magazine. It's long but helpful, I think. He says, the point of the first commandment is not metaphysical monotheism, but practical monotheism. Or to state it differently, God is not giving a lecture in metaphysics here, but making a demand about our actual life-in-the-world experience. The first commandment is not an assertion that Yahweh is the only choice, or that all worship and religious devotion goes to Him because He's the only God. The Old Testament makes it exceedingly clear that there were other options for worship and allegiance in the world of ancient Israel. In a sense, the first commandment was called for by the many gods who clamored after Israel's allegiance. Other gods do have a certain existence, the existence that we give to them. Did Baal exist? No more than materialism does with all its alluring power. Did Ra exist? No more than the nationalism or racism or individualism does for us. What's he saying? He's saying that there effectively are other gods. Certainly there are. Things that command our worship. Things that we give our lives to. Things that we honor as gods around us. Now, for the ancient, in the ancient Near East, in this context, nobody asked the question that, that many do in our culture of, is there a God? Because virtually everyone knew there was a God, was convinced there was a God. The very live question was, which God should I worship? Which God am I supposed to give myself to? And into this reality, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment makes this exclusive claim that we are to be committed to God alone. Okay, let me give you an example uh, from a marriage ceremony, which we've had several even here in this church building. Uh, imagine this, or if you're married, think of your own, your own wedding, that you go through all the vows, you go through all the things that are said, and finally you're, you get to kiss the bride, you're introduced to the congregation, and, and you, you walk down the aisle. And imagine a couple doing this here, and they go out into the commons out there. And the first thing uh, your spouse says to you, they turn to you and say, Darling, I am so glad we're finally married. I cannot wait to introduce you to my other spouses. You know, how, how would you respond? Uh, you would be shocked. You would be outraged. You'd be crushed. Why? Because marriage, by definition, is exclusive. Think about the first, and if you've been to a wedding ceremony recently, the first words that are actually said to the couple when they're standing up front, the first words that are said to them by the minister, you, in, in, uh, in the re- in rehearsals for weddings, uh, oftentimes the father of the bride is nervous and he doesn't know when he's supposed to be up there and when he's supposed to sit down. And One of the things that I tell the father of the bride is, you don't want to sit down until you, until you hear that guy promise in the words of intent, that he is going to love your daughter. Okay, this is the first thing that's, uh, that the, is said to the new couple, this question that comes. Will you have, to the, to the husband first to be and then to the wife, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's word in the holiest state of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, be faithful only to her, as long as you both shall live. Now, those are weighty words. And the father of the bride knows, until I hear that, until I hear that young boy say that, I'm not, letting, I'm not putting my daughter's arm in his. 
because that has to be said first. It is a promise of exclusive commitment. Exclusivity is a part of the definition of marriage, and it is part of the definition of living in relationship with God. Because throughout both the Old and New Testament, the picture of marriage is used as a metaphor of our relationship with God, and it too is designed to be exclusive. Okay, the first thing, exclusive. Second thing about what this command actually commands. It's not only exclusive, it is intensive. It's intensive. It goes right to the heart. It goes right to the core of who we are and what we love. It goes right to the center of our affections. Because everyone worships something. You worship something. You love something. You're loving something right now. There is something around which you are building your life that has your greatest allegiance and loyalty and passion and love. We all love something. It is a part of what it means to be human, that we are hardwired to love. My wife and I used to have a Labrador retriever. And our lab, it could be a hot day, as it is in Williamsburg often, and she could be panting on the floor, utterly exhausted. But as soon as you picked up a tennis ball, she was up and moving. And you throw that thing out in the yard, and you literally, it goes against the laws of nature to keep a lab from running after a ball and playing fetch. They are hardwired that way. I don't mean to suggest that we're laboratory retrievers, but we too are hardwired for something. Your heart is going to worship and love Something. And what is it? This thing that we love sets the direction of our entire lives. This command is intensive. It goes right to the center of who we are. And it brings us to the third point. This command is not only exclusive and intensive, it is comprehensive. Because the thing that you love sets the pattern for every little piece of your life. The thing that you love becomes the lens through which you see everything in your life. Go back to the example of of marriage. Uh, For those of you who are married, remember what it was like when you were single. For those of you who are single, remember what it's like to be single. Saturday morning rolls around and you get out of bed and, and you ask yourself this question, what do I want to do today? Do I want to go to a movie? Do I want to read a book? Do I want to mow the grass? Life is this infinite set of choices before you, and the only real determining factor is, what do I want to do today? Uh, And you get married. And what happens? Uh, There is no longer simply one person in this relationship. Suddenly, and you find this more and more as it sinks in deeper and deeper over the years of marriage, that you are not a solo person anymore. That your life is now intimately wrapped up in the life of someone else, and you can't simply ask the question, what do I want to do today. In fact, not not only is that something that you lose, it becomes inappropriate in marriage because you have said, my life is now going to be about serving and loving this person. My life's now going to be about asking this person, what would bring you joy? How can I give myself to you today? And so you start to see that as you're married longer and longer, that the fact of your marriage seeps down and affects everything about the way you see your life. It affects how you spend your money. It affects how you spend your time. It affects the way your relationships look with other people now, now that you have a primary relationship at the center of your life. It affects everything. And in the same way, we are bound to our one and only God. It affects everything. It is comprehensive. This loyalty and love we are to give to our God affects everything about our lives. 
how we spend our money, how we, uh, how we use our leisure time, what we value in our relationships, everything becomes centered around this center thing. It becomes comprehensive. Okay, so it's exclusive, it's intensive, it's comprehensive, and, and maybe more uh, difficult, it's Trinitarian. Okay, what do I mean by that? Everything that we have just set up until now would have been entirely comprehensible to the first people who received this law and to all of their ancestors throughout the Old Testament. Of course, loving God comes first. Of course, that is an exclusive command. It's intensive. Of course, it captures my entire heart, and it's comprehensive. It affects everything about my life. But there is something that we see that folks in the Old Testament, believers in the Old Testament, saw at best only in a shadow, that we see through the coming of Jesus and through the giving of the New Testament that our love for God is Trinitarian, that our God exists in three persons, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you can see this all over the New Testament, and once you see it, you go back to the Old Testament and, and say, aha, aha, aha. You can see how it was foreshadowed even then. But one of the clearest places to go is simply to the baptismal formula that you heard today, and it comes right from Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. When Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the name of God, baptizing them in the name of our Trinitarian God. And that means that it's only as we embrace what Scripture tells us in its fullness about the richness of God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what it tells us about the divinity of His Son, Jesus, who came, took on flesh, and died and was resurrected for us. It's only as we see that that we are able to worship God truly and rightly because the only God who exists and the one who demands our allegiance and our affection is the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so these aspects of loving, exclusive, intensive, comprehensive, Trinitarian, um, there's, there's, there's a great story in the New Testament that I think illustrates kind of all, all of this. And it comes from Mark 10. This is the story of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. Let me read that for us. Jesus was setting out on his journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The question for this man was what do you love most? What are you giving yourself to? What is the central affection of your heart? What is your, what is your God? And when Jesus asked him these diagnostic questions, in many ways he pitched him a softball, right? Because the guy says, which commands? Jesus only lists commandments 5 through 10, the ones about loving our neighbor. And those should have been convicting enough for him. Uh, but amazingly, uh, he says... To Jesus, he says, teachers, all these I've kept since I was a kid. And Jesus could have said at that point, really? Really? All of them? Perfectly? 
Always honored your mother and father. You indeed are a remarkable person. Um, but, but he doesn't. In fact, what it says is Jesus looks at him and he loved him. And so what Jesus does in love then is to put his finger on the central issue in this man's life. What does he say? He wants this man to know what his deepest love is. He wants this man to know what is filling his vase, what is giving his soul excellency and worth and beauty. Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you own, give to the poor, and come follow me. What's Jesus saying? That our love for God is exclusive. There's no room for you to love God and your wealth in the same way. It's intensive. It comes to the very heart of your experience. It's comprehensive. It affects everything about your life. And in fact, it's Trinitarian too. Because what does Jesus say? Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then go and dedicate yourself fully to God. That's not what he says. He says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. He says, your life is going to be about me now. This relationship with God, it comes through me and in me. He says, go and get rid of all the stuff in the vase that is tearing you away. Empty it out and fill it with me. Come follow me. You hear that? Put me first. Build your life around me. Fill your vase with me. That's what he says to him. That's what Jesus says to us. Okay, that's the commandment and what it is. Just briefly, what it yields and how we cultivate it. Okay, what it yields, what does following this commandment yield? Exactly what Henry Skugel was pointing us to. Worth and excellency of the soul. Beauty of the soul. Now we could come up with a long list of the beautiful fruit of the soul that comes from putting God first. But let me just suggest three things this morning to think about. What does it do? What does it yield in our life when we, when we follow God like this, when he becomes our core affection, when our life is about him? First, I think it gives your life clarity and a clarity that you lack in any other way. As we mention often around here, the Westminster Confession, the shorter catechism that asks that famous question, um, you know, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, to love God. That is what you are made for. And that is what your life is to be spent pursuing. It functions in many ways the same way a mission statement functions for, for a corporation or, or for a church even. You know, why does a company have a mission statement? So that they don't waste themselves chasing every business opportunity possible, but they focus on the things that are essential for them as a company. A mission statement tells you who you are and what you're about. In the same way, this command functions in that sense as a mission statement for us. What is your life about? Glorifying and enjoying God, loving Him, having no other gods before Him. And to the degree to which you're able to grab hold of this commandment as the center thing in your life, you're going to find that that, you're going to begin to see your life with greater and greater clarity. Because like a mission statement... for a company, the mission statement doesn't answer every question about all the decisions that are going to have to come up. But what does it do? It's, it sets your sights in one particular direction and immediately excludes many concerns that never have to bother you because it doesn't fit with that particular mission statement. 
In the same way, putting God first means uh, that we are choosing that above everything else. Let me just give you an example. If loving God becomes the center of your life, if that's going to stand right at the center, then you know a lot of things, such as this. You know that your life is not to be dedicated to the pursuit of wealth or comfort or self-actualization in its many forms. Okay, Because if, if we're supposed to follow God, if that comes first, then nothing else does, and these things don't. Pursuit of wealth, comfort, and self-actualization. We could have listed a million things. And that brings your life clarity. Your life is not about those things. Go back to the marriage example. If you really believe those, those three things were fundamentally true about your life, then wouldn't that wipe away about 90% of your marital conflicts right there? If you didn't think your life was about the pursuit of money or the pursuit of your own personal happiness and comfort, so much of our conflict would vanish in an instant. It brings us clarity. Second things it gives us, it brings us freedom. As we've been saying for this whole, this whole series, that Exodus is about God setting us free. And one way it does that is that it comes in and breaks the addictions of our life. Because if your life is going to be about loving God, then that is war on all the other idols and false gods we set up, the other things that grab hold of our hearts. God comes and makes war on those. He, he comes to break our addictions. Now, we could pick a lot of things, but how about this one? The controlling, consuming desire to be liked. Okay, now, I honestly don't know, uh, for, for women, I don't know if you would phrase it that way. No men would. We would say something like this. I have this deep desire to be appreciated. Okay? You want to be liked. Appreciated. Pick your term. Maybe that makes you be the one who is so careful to always send the thoughtful card. You're the one that is so quick to think about the meal that you, that you need to bring to your friend. You're the one who's quick to be there. Do you want to make sure you're the one to listen to the problem so that you can hear? Or maybe you want to make sure that you're the one who's there for your neighbor when he's doing the home improvement project over the weekend. Or you're the one that your boss knows that he can really count on. And what starts to happen when our lives are about this controlling desire to please other people and essentially be liked? Well, you'll find that the one person you thought you are becomes four and five and six different people. Because there's the work you. There's the family you. There's the softball team you. There's the church you. As you become this chameleon around whatever crowd you happen to be in, mirroring their values so that you can be the one who is liked and appreciated. It leaves you driven, and it leaves you deeply anxious and insecure. And you know that when you succeed, when you're funny enough at the party, when you're helpful enough to your friend, then your God is satisfied and smiles on you. But what happens when you forget your friend's birthday? What happens when you help your friend out on his weekend project and you make things worse rather than better? When suddenly you uh, open your mouth at the party and everyone looks at you like, did he just say that? What happens when the God is not being fed? You're left condemned. And the best thing you have is, I will try harder next time. And this will not happen to me again. 
But putting love of God at the center of our lives means this. As we turn away from all of those false gods, that we find instead a God who not only speaks commands to us, who not only moves towards us in love, but who forgives us. And that is something that the idols of your heart can never do. They can affirm you when you do well. They can hold you in the vice of their grip. But they can never forgive you when you fail. And when God stands at the center, you're freed up suddenly now to actually be thoughtful for your friends. To actually go over and help your neighbor as a way to love them rather than a way to manipulate them to love you. Because when we are failing our idols, we turn suddenly very superstitious, looking for a way to appease it, to make everything work right. But you're not superstitious, of course. Um, For those of you that watch the TV show The Office... Michael Scott, the regional manager for Dunder Mifflin. Uh, Episode early this season when he is convinced the office is cursed because all these bad things are happening. And so he goes through the list trying to think of every possible thing he he can do to appease the gods and break the power of the curse. In the middle of coming up with all these solutions, he looks at the camera and he says, but I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. And you and I, maybe we are not superstitious. Maybe we're just a little bit stitious when it comes to trying to, managing, trying to manage our lives and make things work rather than turning to our God, the God. Okay, what does it yield for us? It yields us clarity and freedom. And last thing, it yields us strength. What is going to give you the strength to survive and to weather all the things that come to you in life? What's this going to give you the strength to weather your success and the blessing that comes to you? To be able to receive that with open hands and not ultimately be controlled by it? To not ultimately demand it? To not ultimately be convinced that you've earned it in the first place? What's going to give you the strength to weather uh, the setbacks and the illnesses and the failures and the suffering? Well, I'd suggest the first commandment has that power for us. Because when we make God the central thing as he commands us to and declares himself to be, then we find a certain strength that comes from that. Because when everything else is shaken in your life, the foundation of your life, your central affection, your central love, stands unmovable and strong and beautiful. The God of the universe, around whom you are building your life, who can never be shaken, and whose love for you can never be shaken. What does the first commandment yield for us? It yields a strength of character and life. Okay, lastly, and just very briefly, how do we cultivate it? Okay, that's what the first commandment commands. That's what it could look like as it plays out in our life. How are we going to cultivate that? How are you and I going to become love God kinds of people? Well, just two things in cultivating this. Let me suggest that we pull the weeds and we water the soil. Pull the weeds and water the soil. Pull the weeds that you repent, that you turn away from the other stuff that you're following, that I turn away from the other things that I am following, that we pull the weeds out. And Maybe you're going to go home this morning not really knowing what those things are. So maybe you have to begin praying this way, Lord, show me the idols. Show me the false gods. Show me the things that I am centering my life on other than you. Expose them for me. 
We have to pull the weeds. Several months ago when Camper was teaching our Sunday school class on the Lord's Prayer, when we got to the phrase, Thy kingdom come, Camper paraphrased it this way, Rule without rival. And that's what you're doing when you pull the weeds. God, I want you to rule without rival in my heart and in my life. So I need you to go to work. I need you to show them to me. And I need you to help me pull the weeds. Pull the weeds. Second thing is water the soil. We do this two ways. One is that we're called to soak our soul in the gospel. Because here we are talking about God's love. But what does scripture say to us? 1 John 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Send his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How are we even going to have the strength to love? Because God loved us first. And he poured out the magnitude of that love for us, put it on display in the cross when he said, this is what you are worth to me, that I will go to this kind of pain and I will go to this kind of humiliation and I will go to this kind of death in order that I might be raised from the dead to secure eternal love and life for you. I've come to give you that. We have to be people that soak ourselves in the reality of the gospel every day. Some of you are good gardeners, unlike myself. When I go out to water, I pull out the hose full force, and I douse a plant for about three seconds, get that quick gallon, move on to the next. What do good gardeners do? And I do it once a week. What do good gardeners do? (laughs) They pull out the sprinklers, and they slowly soak their garden every day. They let it soak. They let the water get in deep, nourish the plants. And we have to be people who soak ourselves in the gospel. Second thing is watering the soul. Soak soil. Soak your soil in the gospel. And second thing, obey God. That's another way you cultivate this. That you act in obedience to God. As you see where He is calling you, obey. Step into that. And see that reinforce your love for God. John 14, 15, Jesus said this. If you love me, you will obey my commands. That's what love looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, Only those who believe obey. And only those who obey believe. That those things work together. That our belief and our grasping hold of the gospel fuels our obedience to our good and faithful God. And the actual act of obedience drives us back to the heart of the gospel itself. They work together. How are we going to cultivate this in our lives? Pull the weeds and water the soil. Soak your soul in the gospel. And live, step into a life of obedience. So there you have it. First commandment. What it commands, what it yields. How to cultivate it. May it be true of us. May it be more true of us even this week. Let's pray. Father, we are weak and failing people. And we don't love you with all our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength and we fail in loving our neighbors ourselves and we thank you that we can still stand with our heads held high because we are forgiven in Jesus the one who did love you with all his heart and his soul and his strength and his mind the one who did love his neighbor perfectly and the one who showers his forgiveness on us and may we in the strength of the gospel live lives now that begin more and more to reflect this in actual love for you. Change us. You have forgiven us. 
You have saved us. You have given us your favor in Jesus. Now we ask that you do your good work of changing us, of making us more and more into the image of Christ, made more and more to look like the glory of your Son as we become people more and more who put you first, who love you above all. May that be our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.